Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 9 to 12 this morning, and we'll finish this group of verses today. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. There it says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the, la- and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking... Lord, that you might grant to us, Lord, this diligence. Lord, a a diligence and a zeal, Lord, to live our lives for your glory, to pursue holiness and obedience to you, and to love the saints. Lord, that you might give to us an even greater confirmation, Lord, of the reality of our faith, and that in this we may obtain a full assurance of hope so that we're able to press on in this life and overcome, Lord, all the difficulties that rise up against our faith and against our perseverance in the things of God. Lord, may we not be sluggish, but rather imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. Lord, knowing that the same promises are set before us in the same life that you called them to, you are calling us to as well. So, Lord, may we follow their example, and we pray today that through the preaching and teaching of your word, Lord, you might build us up in our faith and that you might increase our hope, Lord, so that we will press on to the end. So, Lord, teach us today, and it is in Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this passage where the apostle has been assuring the Hebrew Christians of his love for them and his confidence in their salvation. Right? Though he spoke to them of the sin of apostasy, the sin of falling away, and the judgment that will come upon those who commit such sin, he does not believe uh, that this is a true description of the Hebrew Christians. Uh, there has been and continues to be clear evidence of God's grace in their lives. Their faith is not a dead, lifeless faith, but is a living and active faith. It is manifesting itself by good deeds. And because of this, he's convinced of better things concerning them, the things that concern salvation. Now, last week, we spent our time examining this fruit? What is it that's given him such confidence? These things that have given him such a uh, assurance of their salvation, that God has begun this good work in them, and that God will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. The first evidence was their work, and this describes the whole duty of religion. The entirety of our life is to be devoted to God. When God calls a man out of darkness and into light, when he redeems a man, he sets that man to work for the Lord. In our sinful state, we do the works of sin. We do the works of the devil. But after conversion, we are to do the works of God. And this is the life of obedience and is a summary of the whole duty of man before God. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3 says, The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The time passed, that is, the time before our conversion, is sufficient to doing the works of the devil. 
But now that we've been converted, he no longer wants them to live like that, but instead wants them to pursue a different kind of work, a new work, that is the work of holiness. The second evidence of their salvation was their love. Love being singled out as the preeminent virtue of the Christian life. Right, The Christian life can be defined by love for God and love for neighbor. And in terms of neighbor, especially those who are of the household of faith. And this love they have manifested. And we stated that this love that they have is a love that was implanted in them by the Holy Spirit. Though the world does have a form of love, there is the natural love that is a part of our being human. There is a carnal love that is driven by the flesh. But here they are manifesting true Christian love, which is a spiritual love that is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of a man. And this love is foreign to us in our natural state until we are born again, until we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So if this love is found in us, then it is clear evidence of the work of salvation in that man. And this love was found in the Hebrew Christians. Love toward God's name seen in that they ministered to the saints and they continued in this act of ministry toward them. And this is what distinguishes this love from the love of the world. Right, An unbeliever might do good things to others. He might even do good things to strangers who are in need. But he's not doing those out of faith. And he's not doing them because of love for God. But the believer's love is motivated by his love for God. And his love for God is brought about in him because of the forgiveness of sins. The love of God shown to him in his own redemption causes him to love God. And then it is that love of God that motivates him to do good deeds to others, to love his neighbor as himself. And this is what is true of them. So that's where we left off last week there in verse 10. And today we'll pick up in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. There he says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Here the apostle reveals his ardent desire for the church. Why he has spoken to them in such ways. Why he has unfolded to them both the threats of judgment for those who fall away and the promises of reward for those who persevere. His desire is for their salvation and the salvation of each and every one of them. He wants them to be diligent in their pursuit of the things of God. Diligence in the individual members of the church so that all of them will arrive to the greater assurance of hope to a full assurance of hope, right? The proper end of both gospel threats and gospel promises is to stir within us, within the church, to stir us up to diligence so that we might work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is in the working out of our salvation that we arrive to the full assurance of hope. The threats in the Bible are not intended merely to terrify the minds of men, so that we become despondent, thinking that the thing threatened is unavoidable and must be realized in us. The promises in the Bible are not intended so that we might become complacent, so that we might become careless in our Christian life and have some kind of vain security as if no evil thing can come upon us. 
but rather the purpose of both is to always stir us up to love and good deeds. And that is his purpose. His desire is to encourage, to stimulate them to diligently attend to the work of salvation. And notice here that this desire is for each one of you, right? Each one of you for the whole church. He doesn't just want this for the mature, not just for a special group within them, not just for the leaders, not just for those that he has some peculiar affinity for, but rather this is his desire for the entire flock, the entire body of Christ, whether young or old, mature or immature, whether the most prominent among them or whether the one who is the most insignificant. All of them, each and every one of them, he has this desire for. And this should be our desire as well. Certainly, as the pastor, it should be my desire for the entire flock to arrive at this level, to have this comfort of the full assurance of hope. But it ought to also be the desire of each one of you toward one another, that there is no one who is counted among our, our number who is lost, who falls away, who fails to receive the inheritance, but that all of us would grow and mature in our faith, that all of us would diligently attend to our salvation, that all of us would realize the full assurance of hope until the end, and that ultimately each and every one of us would enter into the heavenly kingdom. This is why the apostle does all the things that he does. This is why he labors so hard among the churches, because he wants all of them to realize the ultimate end of their faith, which is the salvation of their soul. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, he says there, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. He's afraid that his work for them has been in vain, right? Because there is this grievous sin within them, this severe sin. They're stumbling in a severe way. He's afraid all of his work and labor has been in vain that why he labored so diligently would not be realized in their number. So here it is this desire in him for their salvation that is motivating him to say the things that he's saying to them. He has this desire. He wants it to be realized in the entire body of Christ. Now, what is this desire? Notice there in verse 11, that each one of you show the same diligence. He wants each one of them to be diligent, to be diligent in the work of faith and the work of love. This is what he described in verse 10. It is your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, that being the name of God, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He desires their diligence in these things. For the glory and honor of the church, right? The chief evidence of the church's spirituality is seen when each member of the body is diligent and abounds in the duties of faith and the duties of love, especially when those duties are accompanied with great diligence. And yet they continue to press on and diligently pursue those things. This was seen in an example in the person of Job. Job's faith and his love for Lord were evident in all of his life. Even during his prosperity, his faith was clear and his love for the Lord were clear. But his faith and love were more illustriously manifested during the times of his sufferings and his 
hardships. They became even more clear because it was obvious that Job did not serve the Lord simply for his prosperity, but rather he served the Lord because he loved him and he was diligent to pursue those things even when he was brought into a miserable situation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. There it says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Here, he's very grateful for them because their faith is enlarged. Their faith is not stagnant. Their faith is not shrinking. It's staying in the same place, but it's enlarging. And their love is growing even greater as well. They are growing in the work of faith and also in the work of love. And because of this, the apostle speaks proudly of them among the other churches. He's telling them about how exemplary, about the grace of God that is abounding in this church. And here, this is taking place even in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. Their persecutions and afflictions are not causing their faith to shrink or to be deformed, but rather it's growing and their love is growing even in the midst of these many difficulties. And this is why it says that it is through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. And because of this, it is something we must pursue with diligence. It is not easy to live the Christian life. It will not come carelessly. It will not come accidentally but only through diligent attendance to the things of God. And this is what the apostle desires for them. And this is what also must be seen in us. We must continue, we must be diligent in the work of faith and in the labor of love. These things must be growing in us as they were in the Thessalonian church. Our profession will not be preserved nor will the work of faith and the labor of love be carried out in us to the glory of God without a constant, diligent giving of ourselves to these things. The Bible knows nothing of lazy Christianity, of lazy Christians who are satisfied with a mere profession of faith, but who are not diligent to work out their salvation. And yet, in our own day, there are many who suffer under this delusion, who think that the whole of Christianity lies in making some profession of faith in Christ. That as long as they make a profession at some time, then everything is settled and everything is fine. The whole of Christianity is in a mere profession of faith in Christ. Now, certainly, Christianity is not less than a profession of faith in Christ. Certainly, we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We must profess faith in Christ, and this we do at our salvation. But is that the end of the matter? Is that the end of our salvation? Is that the end of Christianity as we know it? Can we now go and live however we please? Can we now go and continue living in the flesh, continue living in sin? No. This is the start of a new life a new life in Christ. From that point on, we are to spend our days not living according to the flesh, but living according to the Spirit. 
giving ourselves to this great work of God. Many show in the things of God. They can exercise diligence. They have the ability to, and they do so in their work. They do so in their career. They are able to do so in the pursuit of their hobbies. They do so in the obtaining of pleasures. They do so in their studies and interests. But when it comes to the things of God, the matters of salvation, the duties of religion, the work of faith, and the labor of love, there they cannot muster up any strength or any diligence to pursue the things of God. And any excuse is a good excuse to the neglect of one's duty. The same ones able to move heaven and earth in the pursuit of what it is that they love, what it is that they desire in this world, and yet the smallest little molehill is enough to keep them and to prevent them from giving themselves to the things of God. It says in Proverbs 26, 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. Any excuse, even something as far-fetched and as ridiculous as a lion in the square, that's enough for me to stay in my home and not go out and work because I don't want to get destroyed by a lion. But how often is a lion in the square? How often is he out in the open road that would prevent me from going to and fro and performing my labor and my duty that I need to do? And this is what the slugger does. Any excuse, any reason that he can think of to justify staying at home, staying in bed, lazing around all day, and not going out into the field to work is a legitimate excuse that he will use. And this is how it is in many parts of Christianity. But can lazy Christians go to heaven? What do we think? That the saints of old had to persevere through many hardships, through many tribulations? That they had to diligently attend to their salvation? That this is the path that they trod as they made their way to heaven? And yet God has given to us an easy way, an easier path to heaven? We take the road of ease and safety and we casually waltz right into heaven while theirs was filled with many hardships, much difficulty, much danger, and it took their diligence and care. Are they the only ones who need to be diligent? Of course not. They had to be diligent. They had to persevere. They had to attend to the work of faith and the labor of love. And as it was with them, so it must be with us. There is only one Christianity. There is only one way, and it is the way in which they have walked. We must fix our minds on these two truths. First, unless there is within us a work of faith in personal holiness and a labor of love towards the saints, then there is nothing of salvation in us. If our salvation does not produce some desire for obedience to God, for holiness to be manifested within us, for godliness to be in us, then it is a dead, worthless faith. It says in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. And if that faith within us does not produce a love for God's people, then what is this faith that we speak of? The work of faith, the labor of love. If those are not seen in us in some measure, then there is no salvation. We do not know the salvation of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, this holiness, is that perfect holiness? Of course not. Of course not. But there must be within us some desire for holiness. For just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all that you do. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When God calls us to salvation, he's calling us to holiness, to obedience to God. And then also 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There, without holiness, no one will see God. And without love, you do not know God, because God is love. No holiness, no love, means no salvation, that you do not belong to God. So first, there is within us a work of faith leading to holiness toward God, and a labor of love toward his saints, then there is nothing of salvation in us. And then secondly, this work of faith in personal holiness and the labor of love toward the saints will not persist in us or be brought to maturity within us without deliberate diligence. Without diligence, there will not be growth in faith, in holiness, and in love. Just as we read from the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 5. Their faith was growing and their love was growing. Did that happen accidentally? Did it happen with them being careless, with them just getting up and living blindly through this life in their pursuit of the things of God? No, it happened through diligence, faithfulness, diligence to attend to their own salvation. No man ever has and no man ever will excel in holiness and love accidentally, but only through diligence to the things of God, a constant practice of the things of the Lord. He must make this his goal, his aim, the whole work of his life to be obedient to the Lord. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The mature are defined by those who because of practice, constant practice, constant diligence to the things of God, they have their discernment trained so that they can make a distinction between good and evil. Just as it is with the Olympic athlete. Right? There's no one who rolls off of their couch having just consumed three bags of Doritos and drank a liter of cola and says, I'm going to roll out and go compete at this level with these athletes and have any chance of victory against them. Right? This never happens. Right? In addition to those people having natural gifts as athletes, they also must train with great diligence with great fervor, they must pursue these things, constantly exercising, constantly watching their diet in order to compete at that level. It is through strenuous training that they arrive to such a level of excellence in this whatever field they're competing. And this is the way it is in the Christian life as well. No one will arrive there, uh, you know, the couch potato Christian. 
It's not going to happen, right? They're not going to be produced in that way. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4 uses this metaphor of the athlete to describe how we should pursue obedience in the Christian life. 4 verse 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Discipline yourself, he says, for the purpose of godliness. Right? The bodily discipline that the athlete subjects himself to, it does have some profit, little profit. It benefits him in this life because he's able to do things that others cannot do. He's able to run without growing as tired, without growing as weary. He's able to bend down and tie his shoes, right, without it being a, uh, a major issue, without cramping four or five times, right, because of this bodily training. But the spiritual training that we are to pursue has promised both for this life, it benefits us now, but it also is going to benefit us in the life to come. And this is what he desires for them. The same diligence in the work of faith and in the labor of love. Now, why? What is the benefit they will receive in such a diligent attending to salvation? We'll notice what he says there in verse 11. So as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. This is the benefit the blessing that God confers on those who diligently attend to salvation. This is why he wants them to mature in their faith. Maturity in the faith, right? Diligence in the work of faith and labor of love has a great value and benefit to the soul. That's what we just read from 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. It has promise, it has benefit, not only for the life to come, but also when? For this present life, right? For this present life, it is beneficial for us to have these spiritual disciplines, right? To be diligent to attend to our salvation. And this is what he wants for them. He wants their maturity. He wants them to be teachers, he says in Hebrews chapter 5. He wants them to eat solid food. He wants, uh, because of practice, their senses to be trained to discern good and evil, He wants them in chapter 6, verse 1, to press on to maturity, right? Because those who arrive at a more advanced stage of the Christian life also receive greater comfort, greater hope, greater blessings from the Lord. And here, the specific blessing he has in mind is the full assurance of hope. Hope. Hope is an essential aspect of, of the Christian life. Hope is a product of true saving faith. It is impossible that one can have true faith yet have no hope. These two virtues are inseparably bound together in the counsel of the Lord. Hope is a certain assured expectation of the good things promised by God in his word. It is an unwavering confidence that God will accomplish all that he has promised to his children. Hope is accompanied with a desire, with a love, with a valuation of such promises. And it is this hope in the fulfillment of God's eternal blessings that sustains a Christian during the time of his sojourning on this earth, especially during times of hardships and sorrows 
during trials and tribulations. Without hope, we would faint. We would grow weary. We would not be able to persevere. We would give up, right? We would walk away. Without hope, we cannot, through many tribulations, enter to the kingdom of God. Hope is produced in us in this way. Here is the way in which God produces hope in his children first. God has made great promises to us in his word. The Bible is filled with the promises of God that he gives to his children. He declares to us his goodness, his purposes, the grace of of God toward us. We see the goodness of God in his grace to us in what God has promised to do for us in the life to come, in the eternal blessings that God will bestow upon his people, that we will be delivered from all evil. We will be delivered from sin and death and Satan, and we will enter into full everlasting glory with God. The Bible promises us that we will dwell with God for all eternity, that we will be glorified, that we will no longer be subjected to sin, to death, or to Satan, that we will no longer be plagued with death and misery and sorrow. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness because the former things will have been done away with. We will enter into a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. These are the things that God has in store for those who love him. These are the good promises of God. But in our current situation, these are promises. These are pledges that God has given to his people. They are promises, but they are still absent promises in that we have not entered into the full enjoyment of them. So long as we remain in this life, we have these things, but we have them by way of promise to us. We have not entered into the full enjoyment of all these things. And we know this to be true because the Job says, as, far, as sparks fly upward, so man is born for trouble. And the prophet Jacob said, few and evil have been the days of my sojourning. Few and evil are the days. Man is born for trouble, the prophet Job says. Well, when is the day of evil, right? When is the day that we experience trouble? It's in this present life. But what about the life to come? What about the eternal life? No, none of those things will be there. We will be delivered from every evil thing and we will have perfect peace. We will enter into the rest of God. These blessings await us. They are ours and they will be accomplished in the life to come. But we have not experienced them yet. We have not entered into them. We have a taste of those, a foretaste, a pledge, an assurance of those from God, but we've not entered into the full experience of salvation. But hope sustains us. And hope always has reference to things that are not yet seen things that are still future, these eternal promises of God that God will give to us in the life to come. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, speaks of hope in this way, right? Hope has to do with the future, right? With what God will do. This is why in 1 Corinthians 13, when it says, these three abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In the life to come, there will be no longer any need for hope. Because everything will be realized. It will all be brought and accomplished. So there's nothing that we're hoping for. God will have performed and accomplished all of his promises to us. 
But in this life, that hasn't been the case. We're still waiting for them. We're still longing for them. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Who hopes in what he sees? No one does because he has it. But we don't have it yet. That's why we are hoping for these things. And this hope is not us crossing our fingers, hoping that God will do it. But it is a confidence and assurance that God will certainly do these things. So hope always has reference to the promises of God found in the word of God that God has made to his people. Secondly, faith fixes itself upon these promises. The promises of God, the word of God. Faith is the certain conviction in a believer that God will surely accomplish everything he has promised to them in his word. And faith rests upon both the faithfulness of God and the power of God. Right? Since God is faithful, then whatever he promises, he will surely fulfill. Because God cannot lie and God cannot deny himself. And if God promises to do something and then does not do it, then God is not faithful. God is a liar and God cannot deny himself. And then since God has all power, whatever God has promised, is he lacking in the ability or power to actually accomplish it, to actually bring it about? Of course not. Because he is faithful and he has declared these things in his word, we know that this is what God has said he will do. And because he has all power, we know that he has the ability to bring it about, even if it seems impossible to us, even if it is something that, humanly speaking, is possible. Because for man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Again, the promises are yet future. Though in this life the promises are still absent and the believer has not entered into the full enjoyment of them, they are secured in the believer by faith. There is this assurance, this conviction that what God has promised, he will surely bring it about. And then the third in the chain. First, there is the promise of God. Then there is faith fixing itself upon the promise of God. And then thirdly, hope is the product of true saving faith. Hope is the acting of the soul toward these promises. Hope causes a man to value, to cherish, to love, and to desire these promises. Hope causes a man to long for them, to strive for the eternal and spiritual blessings above and greater than the physical, earthly, temporal blessings of this life. And it is our hope that sustains us, that strengthens us during the time of our sojourning when the Christian life is accompanied with many trials and many tribulations and many temptations, right? We face temptations on every side. And if we only receive benefit in this present life, then 
we're going to fall away. We're going to walk away because we're going to say, what's the point, right? What is the benefit in serving the Lord? It's not benefiting me in this present life. This is the seed that fell among the rocks. When the sufferings come because of the word, it falls away because it's not getting any benefit. But the true believer is able to overcome those things because why is he believing these things? Is it just for his immediate benefits in this present life? Or is it for a hope of future glory? Right? It is for something that is coming in the future. That is why he has put his faith in Christ. It is for the full forgiveness of sins and this ultimate redemption in the life to come. It is our hope in these things that causes us to overcome all obstacles. It is the hope of eternal life. This is what gave the martyrs the ability to lay down their present life. It was for the hope of the life to come, of an eternal life. And in their laying down their life, they show and they prove that the eternal and spiritual is more valuable to them. It's greater to be desired in them than this present temporal physical life. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation is a, a weapon, it is a piece of armor in the arsenal of the believer that is essential for him to wage his warfare, to fight the good fight of faith. And this is what the apostle desires for the Hebrew Christians, and this is what we should desire as well. He wants this for them. He wants them to have hope, but he doesn't want them to have meager hope or little hope. He wants them to have full assurance of hope. Full assurance. Since hope is connected to faith, as a man goes in his faith, so he goes in his hope. Whatever is happening in terms of his faith will also be seen in terms of his hope. And we know that a man can have either strong faith or he can have weak faith. He can have great faith or he can have little faith. And so also with hope. Hope can be strong and can be great or hope can be weak and it can be little. And here when he says full assurance of hope, he's speaking of a degree Hope to a certain degree, and this is the greatest degree of hope that we can have in this life. A hope that gives to us full assurance. Full assurance that we are children of God, and full assurance that all that God has promised, He will certainly accomplish and bring about for us. He does not want them having little hope, or to have a weak hope. Those with weak faith have weak hope. They have some hope, but their hope does not rise to this level of full assurance. There it is mixed with doubts and with uncertainty. But when faith is strengthened, when it comes to maturity in a man, then he obtains full assurance of hope, great confidence in one's salvation and the promises of glory. And this hope leads to greater perseverance leads to rejoicing. It gives him joy and comfort, even in the midst of many harsh, severe trials and tribulations. And that is what they need, because what are they experiencing as a church right now? The Hebrew Christians. They are facing a severe trial. 
They're going through hardships. They're being persecuted. They are suffering reproach for the name of Christ. And because they are suffering for faith in Christ, it's causing them to have doubts. It's filling them with fear. They are shaky. They lack stability. And this is because of the weakness of their faith. That's what he said in chapters 5, 11 to 14. You, he says, have become dull of hearing. Because they're dull of hearing, their faith is weak. Their faith is stunted. They're not growing in the faith. They're not arriving at adulthood. And because they do not have strong faith, then also they don't have the full assurance of hope. And it's causing them to be shaky and to lose their stability. And that's why he's urging them to diligence. As they are diligent in the work of faith and the labor of love, their faith is going to grow. It's going to be strengthened. And the result will be a greater hope. And that hope will lighten the severity of their trials. Right? The strength of faith will always be in proportion to the evidences of faith. Right? Faith, the evidence or assurances of faith, and hope. These are always interconnected, right? They are always bound together. We remember James chapter 2, verse 6. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is a dead faith. If there are no good works, then it proves that the man does not have true saving faith. No fruit, no faith. But where good works are abounding, then what does it do for that person? It gives him greater and greater confidence that God has indeed begun a good work in him and that if God has begun this work, God will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Right? There are various types of people. Right? There are those who have a false faith, who are false Christians. One who say they have faith, but they produce no fruit. And a person who says he has faith, yet produces no fruit, what is that person? He's a liar. The truth is not in him. Yet many such persons who have this kind of faith also entertain a hope of eternal life. But this hope is a vain hope. It is a false hope. It is vain security that they have built upon lies and falsehood. We read about one such case in Micah chapter 3, verse 11 on Wednesday night. Micah 3, verse 11. There, the people, though their lives are defined by evil, sin, wickedness, every manner of corruption is present in these people. And yet, they say in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, Is the Lord not in our midst? Catastrophe will not come upon us though everything about their life is defined to them that their deeds are evil and the judgment of God abides upon them, they have this vain security, this hope that is built upon lies, falsehoods, delusions, that everything is going to be fine and dandy with them and no catastrophe will come upon them. And this is what many people entertain in our own day as well. Because they've made some profession, because they have some former attachment to the things of God, but though their life testifies that they are unregenerate, that they are not children of God, they're living in sin and wickedness with no desire to overcome any of those things, yet they are fully convinced that the Lord is among them and that no catastrophe will come to them on the day of judgment. This is false hope. And there are many 
false Christians who entertain this type of false hope. Then there are those who are weak Christians, true believers, yet their faith is weak. They have little faith. And those with little weak faith produce little good fruit. They produce some good fruit because faith is in them and the Spirit is in them and it's impossible that they will not. There is some work of faith and there is some labor of love, but it's not abounding within them, right? In this person who has little faith, hope waxes and wanes. He's constantly vacillating between hope and fear. He's beset with doubts, with fear, with trepidation. He does not have the full assurance of hope because he's constantly going between these two opinions. Because the evidences of faith, the assurances of faith are so meager and so weak, his hope is also very weak. And he goes through seasons of discouragement, seasons of joylessness. He desponds because of the weakness of his faith and the faintness of his hope. But then there are those who are the strong Christians, those who are the mature, those who are described in 1 John chapter 2 as the old men in the faith, those who have great faith, they have strong faith. And where faith is strong, the evidences and assurances of faith will also be strong. A strong faith will produce much good fruit. And where there is much good fruit, then there is greater evidence of the grace of God in the life of a man. And that greater evidence that one has true, sincere, living, saving faith. And this confidence increases, and as it increases, so does the strength of hope. So that it arrives to a degree of full assurance of hope. When a man has full assurance of hope, he has great stability. He has great comfort. He has great joy in the Lord. He has confidence of God's love for him, even when he's facing severe trials and tribulations. This is like the martyrs, those men who give their life for the Lord. Yet while they're being tortured, while they're being put to death, they do not doubt the love of God. They do not doubt the goodness of God. They do not doubt the power of God or God's faithfulness to them. But some of them even rejoicing in their sufferings, singing praises to God while they're even being put to death. And where does that come from? It becomes from their strong faith. And it comes from their full assurance of hope that they have firm until the end. This kind of hope causes a man to rise, as it were, above this present world. So that though physically he is here in this world, yet spiritually he's already risen into the world to come. His faith and his hope are so strong that it produces in him a spiritual zeal, a vitality that is not affected by his present condition. Now, in this present life, no one perfectly arrives at this measure of hope, right? So long as we have the flesh... No one will ever have perfect faith, meaning no one will ever have a perfect hope. Even in the greatest of Christians, even in those with the strongest of faith, there will be times and seasons of discouragement, of fear, of doubt, of trepidation. But the stronger one's faith, the stronger one's hope, the greater evidences and assurances of faith, those seasons and times will be lessened both in their frequency and in their 
severity, right? He will have greater confidence and greater joy and greater comfort throughout his life. This is what he wants for them. He wants them to have strong faith, produce much fruit that results in full assurance of hope until the end. And this will not happen in them, and it will not happen in us. No one ever has and no one ever will increase in faith without diligently attending to their salvation. No one will ever abound in good fruit without diligence to the things of God. No one will ever arrive at full assurance at hope without diligently working out their salvation with fear and trembling. There is the end goal, which is full assurance of hope, and this goal will be met, will be brought about through a particular means that has been ordained by God. The means of obtaining it is ordained by God just as surely as the obtaining of the blessing. God is the one who has obtained or who has ordained both of them. Everyone wants assurance. Every Christian, whether a fake Christian, whether a weak Christian, whether a strong Christian, everyone wants assurance that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. They want to know that I know that I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I'm a child of God. I will have eternal life. Everyone wants the blessing of full assurance of hope. Yet in most of them, they despise the means ordained by God to obtain this blessing. God has ordained the blessing. God is the one who grants the gift of assurance to his people. It is a grace of God. It is a gift of God. But God has also ordained the way in which he will give this blessing to us. And what is the way described in Hebrews 6, 9 to 12? Diligence. Diligence in the things of God. Romans chapter 5. And though that diligence is also a gift of God that God must produce in us, it's still our responsibility, and we are to pursue it with all of our might. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There, the ordering are tribulations, perseverance, which is diligence, proven character, and hope. Hope is the end. It is what comes after the end of this cycle. We face the tribulation, we persevere through the tribulation, through diligence, it proves our character, and from that proven character, we are granted hope. It gives to us a greater hope. This is the means ordained by God by which he grants to his people the full assurance of hope. Then one last passage in relation to this topic, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Even when uh, we are assaulted with fears, with doubts, with trepidation. And no matter who we are, because of the flesh, 
And because of the presence of indwelling sin, right? Sin brings about death and it brings about fear. This is the result of sin. And even in the believer, though it will not result in our eternal damnation because all of our sins have been forgiven, but in terms of our comfort, in terms of our assurances, when we sin against God, it upsets that, right? It causes it to be unstable in terms of our hope and assurance. However, ultimately, our assurance is not based upon us, but it's based upon who? 1 John chapter 3, 18 to 22. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. There, when we love, not in word, but in deed and in truth, it assures us that we are of the truth. It assures our hearts before him. It gives us confidence that we belong to God, that God's love has been poured into us because how is it possible for us to love in deed and in truth without the love of God within us? It's impossible. It is a fruit of the Spirit. However, Whenever our heart condemns us, and when does our heart condemn us? Whenever we commit sins against Who is greater than our hearts? God is greater than our hearts. And he is the one who ultimately gives us this assurance and this confidence. Right? It is dependent in part upon our diligence, upon our love, upon this work of faith. In terms of us receiving and in terms of us having this blessing, this comfort, this assurance... But in terms of the stability of our salvation, it's never based upon anything that we do. But it is based solely upon the goodness of God, His faithfulness to us. And this is why, even when our heart condemns us, God assures us of His love for us. And that even the sins of the believer will never snatch them out of the hands of God. Will never cause Him to cast us away or, do, or, or be rid of us. Okay, then verse 12. Verse 12, and this will be the... Much shorter part. Verse 12. He says, So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here, there is diligence and there is sluggishness. He doesn't want them to be sluggish in their work of faith or the labor of love. He wants them to be diligent. Now, we'll deal with this issue of sluggishness in the second hour today. But here he ends by giving them hope for this expectation of diligence, right? It's not some unobtainable standard. He's not setting before them something that is beyond their reach or some new expectation that no one has ever pursued or no one can pursue. But rather, all of those who have entered into salvation, all of those who have gone before us, who have inherited the promise they did so in exactly the same way that he has set before them in exactly the same way that is set before us. We have an entire body of believers, a cloud of witnesses, many examples of righteous men in the women, and women in the Bible, all of those who have gone before us, who diligently attended to their salvation, who through many tribulations entered into the kingdom of God who through diligent faith 
and patient hope inherited the promises of God. And this gives us great encouragement in two ways. One, first, it assures us that the promise of an inheritance is not an empty promise. God promised them, and we see that God has fulfilled his promise to them. We have all of these examples in the Bible of saints who patiently waited for God to fulfill his promises, and did God disappoint any of them? No, in every single case, in every single example, none of them were disappointed, but God fulfilled every word of promise he gave to them. They obtained their inheritance. So it assures us that God does not make empty promises. Secondly, all of those who went before us, all of these that he's calling us to imitate, every single one of them, without exception, were men with a nature like ours. And God expected no less of them than he does of us. He required no less of them, and he requires no more of us. He required the same for them as he does for us. He requires the same for all of those who will inherit the promise. And God's grace was sufficient for them. And if God's grace was sufficient for them, then is it not sufficient for us? Can he not bring it about for us? We can obtain the promised inheritance, but we must obtain it in the same way that they did. And how did they obtain it according to verse 12? By faith and by patience. Faith and patience. This is how they obtained the promise. They had to wait for God to give it to them. And while they waited, they had to keep believing in these promises, and they had to be diligent to attend to their salvation. And if they are able to do it, and they have a nature like ours, then who else can do it? We can do it as well. If they can do it, so can we. This is why Jesus says in John 8, 39, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. And Abraham will be the example brought up. He is the father of the faith. He is the preeminent example in the Bible of a man of faith. And whatever was true of Abraham must be true of all of his children. We claim to be children of Abraham by faith. And if we are his children, then we, according to Jesus in John 8, 39, must do the deeds of Abraham. We must walk the way that Abraham walked. We must obtain the promised inheritance in the same way that he obtained it. And how did Abraham obtain it? Through faith and through patience. We have Abraham. We have Abel. We have Noah. We have Moses. We have Joshua. We have David. We have Peter. We have Paul. We have many other men and women of faith set before us in the scriptures. The outcome of faith, the end goal of a life of obedience is set before us in them. All of them, without exception, are described in Hebrews chapter 12 as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. All of them have entered into the joy of the Lord. All of them have received the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their soul. They have all entered into the promised rest of God. They have received an inheritance from the Lord. This is where they are now. But at one time in the past, they were in our shoes. Their situation was identical to ours. They had to contend with the flesh. They were exposed to temptation. They had a body of weakness as we do. 
They had to overcome the wiles of the devil. They were called to labor for the Lord. They had to endure sufferings as a good soldier of Christ. They had to diligently attend to the work of faith and the labor of love. But now they don't have to do that anymore, though they are always attending to the work of love. But they're not exposed to any of the hardships and difficulties that make the Christian life so hard in our present situation. And they have received the promised inheritance. We must follow their example. They had to shake off their sluggishness. They had to shake off whatever entangled them, the sin that so easily entangled. They had to put it away, and they had to press on until they entered into the kingdom of God. They were not those who shrank back, but they were those who diligently attended to their salvation. And what must we do then as well? We must be like them. We have to walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And will we be disappointed? Of course not. They were not disappointed. We will not be disappointed either. So then, let us press on. Press on, right? Shake off the sin, stir up what remains, and press on until we reach the goal, which is that heavenly kingdom above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that everything that we need for life and salvation has been given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have provided, Lord, a full forgiveness of sins. Lord, you have ransomed us from the feudal ways that we've inherited from our forefathers. Lord, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have given all of these things that are necessary, Lord, outside of us that bring about our redemption. But Lord, we know as well that you provide graciously for your people and that everything that is necessary to be produced in us, Lord, you graciously grant those things as well. And Lord, we see here that we are in great need of faith. We need patience. Lord, we need a full assurance of hope. Lord, we need to abound in good deeds, in this work of faith, in the labor of love. And Lord, you will not grant to us your many comforts and blessings that we so desperately need in this life, Lord, apart from our diligent pursuit of the things of God. So, Father, we pray that you would produce this work within us, that, Lord, our spirits would be stirred within us to Lord, to pursue the things of God and to cherish those things above, you know, greater than the many distractions that are associated with this life. Lord, we, we know and we confess that we are so easily, Lord, ensnared. We are so easily distracted by all of the objects, the pleasures, the comforts associated with this present life. And that, Lord, it is to our shame that we so often will pursue these things with greater fervor than we will, Lord, our own salvation. And Lord, we know that this is coming from unbelief, Lord, from the flesh, and we pray that, Lord, you would grow our faith, that it might become greater and greater within us, Lord, that it would arrive to a, a mature state, that we would be strong in faith, and that, Lord, you would grant to us a full assurance of hope, firm until the end. Lord, that even when our 
current situation, Lord, the condition in this life, Lord, even when the comforts and pleasures, uh, Lord, even the necessities of life are deprived of us, Lord, that our, our spiritual life would not be affected by these things, but that we might still have joy and comfort and hope, Lord, even during those very difficult situations. So, Father, we pray that you would work within us, and Lord, that we might be diligent, Lord, to pursue the things of God. Lord, seeing that this present life is passing away, and it is only the one who does the will of God who will endure forever. We thank you, Father, that you have given to us, Lord, a cloud of witnesses. So many examples in the Bible of of sinners who were saved by your grace, Lord, who were filled with your Spirit, and who were able to, by your grace, walk with you until they entered into the heavenly kingdom. Lord, we know that you have called us to no different life than what you called them. And if your grace was sufficient for them, we know it will be sufficient for us. Lord, and if they were able to do it, we know that we also can do it as well. So Lord, may that give us encouragement. Lord, may it rouse within us a zeal and a desire to pursue these things. And Lord, whatever we attain in this life, Lord, by way of faith or hope, Lord, by way of obedience to you and holiness, Lord, we know that ultimately it comes from you and it is a work of your grace within us. And so, Lord, we give to you all the praise and glory. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.